This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, July 22nd, 2017. And today we are talking about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, Dunkirk, and more. But before we start that, uh, John, how was your week? Hey, it's good. It's been a great week. Uh, D&D game is up and running, board games are go, and I saw the movies. Aha! Uh-huh. Plus, uh, we got a confirmation that Mark Kern is planning on coming on this Thursday. Yeah, we really wanted to do it this week, but he's a busy man, so we'll talk to him uh, next Thursday. Um, Mark Kern is the lead developer of World of Warcraft. He's also was, I don't know if he was lead developer, but he was uh, instrumental in Diablo 2. He has published a tabletop role-playing game, which is why we're talking about it on uh, Geek Gab Game Night. And he is also now kickstarting a video game based in the same world as his tabletop game. So there's a whole bunch of... Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different possible topics we can talk to him about. For those of you who are into the role-playing games, we can talk about how he, as a you know, as a video game designer, came and and went about designing a tabletop game, and then we can talk about how he went translating that game world back into a video game. So I think that's a that's going to be a, a pretty fascinating discussion. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to him. I'll try not to spend the whole time blaming him for my World of Warcraft addiction. <laughs> Brian, how was your week? Well, it went fast. Although I'm happy to report that I, I've seen at least one of the movies. You're, you're, you're unsure as to the exact number? or Yeah, I like this at least one construction. It's, it sort okay. of implies that it's like a, a quantum mechanics are at play. You, you, we, we won't know if he's seen the second one until we actually begin the uh, review. Were, were you trying to draw the listeners in? Were you sleep deprived or drunk? I'm or? always sleep deprived. <laughs> you just don't remember. I, I'm never drunk. I'm always sleep deprived. <laughs> it's a surprise. See it. Uh, it builds dramatic tension. Well, what I did was I went and saw Valerian, and then I went and saw Dunkirk. And then last night, that's when I saw both movies, was yesterday, I also went and watched another Luc Besson movie for the very first time that I've heard very good things about. It's about 23 years old, and I haven't watched it yet until last night. It's called The Professional, or Leon the Professional. And one of the things I was really grateful for watching it last night is I realized almost immediately that it would provide a dramatic contrast with Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, and it would illustrate what uh, where Luc Besson has gone wrong since then. So um, it, it, it enabled me to maybe bring a deeper discussion to the, to the table rather than just, oh, hey, this movie was whatever it was that I think it was. So... Um, I'm glad you saw it, actually. The Professional is a great movie. Yeah, I can't believe uh, you, you went that long without seeing it. I, it, it wasn't a deliberate choice. It was just uh, I never had, the, never had the chance to see it. Every time I wanted to see it, I wasn't able to for various reasons. So, yeah, last night was the very first time. Now, which version did you watch? Did you watch uh, the American <laughs> release or the international version? I saw the non-creepy version. Okay, good. <laughs> So that, that was the ver- yeah, the reason why I saw it is because a couple weeks ago, um, it came up for sale on the iTunes store. And I'm like, oh, yeah, The Professional. I've always wanted to see that. Ah, oh, heck, it's only 8 bucks in 8D. I'll buy it. It's, that's the cost of a movie ticket, right? 8 bucks yeah. is the cost of a movie ticket. So if you're buying a movie in HD for 8 bucks, um, even if you don't like it, you weren't any more screwed than if you'd bought a movie ticket. So that was my thinking. Is I'm willing to risk a movie that I don't know if it's going to be good or bad or not uh, at eight bucks, at least at eight bucks, maybe as high as ten. Um, so, do we want to start off by just rummaging through the professional real quick? Sure. Have, have both it. of you seen it? It's been oh, a while. Yeah. Okay, so that's a yes, but but it's been a while for, for John. Okay, so I saw The Professional last night. It's by Luke Basson, who also directed 
Taken. He also directed uh, The Fifth Element. He also he directed a large number of action movies, and many of them are set in France. Um, and and has, does a really good job. He does a great job. And uh, I've been a big Luc Besson fan for a long time because I like the movies he makes. He makes fast-paced, entertaining movies. And generally speaking, they're not really pretentious. They don't have a lot of preachiness about them. They're not slow. They're, they're just fun action movies. And even if there are good themes to them, like one of the reasons I love Taken is it's about a dad who goes out to protect his daughter and gets old school on the people who are victimizing his daughter. And I think that's a great theme to bring out in the movie, but he doesn't spend a lot of time preaching about it. He started to really, really go off the beam when he made Lucy, and I hated Lucy. I really did. And we had a review on this show, so I don't need to belabor it. Um, you can go back and watch the review of Lucy if you want to know what I thought about it. But I, I did not like the movie at all. So The Professional was made 23 years ago. And what happened was he was trying to make the fifth element. He was trying to get the fifth element up and running. And they, it took a long time to arrange for all of the funding that they would need, all of the money they would need to make the fifth element, because it was a, a big budget film. And so he knew he wasn't going to be able to make the fifth element for three more years. And he sat down and said, I can't wait three years to direct a movie. So he wrote up a script and it was in La Femme Nikita, which is a, a French movie that I haven't seen. Um, but again, it's a Luc Besson movie. The uh, Reno, Jean Reno, um, who plays the main character in The Professional, uh, played a certain assassin type that he and Luc Besson really, really liked. So they kind of took that same character under a different name and in a different situation and built the professional around him. It was also, uh, now if you've seen the very first Mission Impossible, he plays the French guy with the knife in the first Mission Impossible. That's the same actor. Um, and the professional was also Natalie Portman's acting debut it was the very first movie she was in and she was 11 and 12 when they shot uh the film uh they shot most of the exteriors in new york city a lot of the interiors uh, in a hotel and the rest in france um and the movie is about a young girl whose entire family gets wiped out by hitman her neighbor is a professional hitman living in New York. She goes to him because they've kind of met and talked after her family gets killed, and he takes her in, and she finagles her way into getting trained by him as a hitman. And then later in the movie, uh, well, it's a hitman who took it, a young girl whose family was killed. If you can't connect the dots as to what is going to happen, what is inevitably going to happen later in the movie, if you can't connect those dots, then I, you're probably probably listening to the wrong show. <laughs> because after that point, what is going to happen is inevitable and obvious. And it is the sort of story we have seen before. But it is very, very well done. It's very, very imaginatively done. The dialogue is not cliched and it's not boring. Gary Oldman is in it, who was also in The Fifth Element, uh, plays the main bad guy, and he does just an incredible job. And it was so shocking to me because I've gotten used to seeing Gary Oldman as an old man. I don't mean to make that pun, but he was serious black in the Harry Potter movies, for example. And... You look at him, and in this movie, he looks young. He looks like he's about 15 almost. I'm, I'm joking, of course. He's exaggerating. But he's such a young actor. Um, and he does just an incredible job at bringing to life this psychotic uh, individual. So it's a story you've seen before, but the actors do a great job. Natalie Portman does a great job. John Renault does a great job. Gary Oldman does a great job. It's beautifully directed and shot. It's very interesting, and the story is a simple story, but the plot is not straightforward. Uh, Danny Aiello um, is also in it, who's a great, just a killer character actor. Um, 
And I very much enjoyed the movie because it was a simple story told well. They did not clutter up the movie's runtime with a bunch of extraneous events or characters or situations. They didn't shove a bunch of frilly, useless crap that did nothing but bog down the movie and make it kind of slow and uh, confusing. It is simple, it's clear, the action scenes are visceral, and the professional is just so very well done. If you go and see what they call the long cut, don't. The extended cut, or sometimes it's called the director's cut. Make sure you get the cut that was originally released in theaters. The director's cut wasn't released for years later, um, because it cuts out a lot of stuff that is really kind of creepy and squicky, and, and I haven't watched it. Um, it is, by the way, it is part of the download. When I downloaded the movie on iTunes, I got the theatrical cut, and I also got this extended cut, which has 25 minutes of additional material, which is just going to slow down the story, and it adds a bunch of stuff to it that's kind of squicky. Um, so I'm glad I did not try to watch that, because I would have hated the movie if I had seen the slow, boring, squicky version. As it is, I saw the version that was originally released in theaters, and it was great. Now... You may wonder why I'm belaboring the point of a simple story, well told, not confusing, uh, not a bunch of extraneous frippery. That brings us to Valerian, which is a brilliant example of where Luc Besson went wrong. Where he went wrong, maybe earlier than Lucy, but definitely by Lucy, you could see, oh man, he's gone off the rails, he's, he's going into the ditch here. So um, since we all, or since uh, at least one of us saw Valerian, I'm, I'm going to let them go ahead and do the description. But first, do either of you have any further comments on The Professional? Yeah, fun fact. Barry Oldman's character is frequently shown listening to music on his headphones in The Professional, right? And at the very beginning, he's listening to, to Beethoven and he even has a little speech about, about how he loves Beethoven. Well, The Professional was done right after Gary Oldman had played Beethoven in Immortal Beloved. So it's a little <laughs> odd to his prior role. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, it's even self-deprecating because he does mention that while he loves Beethoven, he finds his openings a little... After the openings, he can get a little boring. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suppose I could say something about Valerian. I mean, just as a quick synopsis, it's a science fiction movie set in the future. Valerian is uh, the name of a main character, a young, um, cocky federal agent that does dangerous missions along with, with his partner slash, you know, girlfriend. Uh, what's her name? Laureline. And uh, yeah. they're, they're in space and they go to great, you know, these vast planets and go on missions and have adventures. That's it. A an adventure happens in this movie. Um, and I should point out that um, Valerian is based on a French comic book that is like five, 50 years old. Um, so it's an adaptation of material that originally appeared in another medium. And I have not read the comic book, so I know nothing about it. So I can't tell you if it was faithful or not to the comic. I'm guessing not. That, that would be my bet. If I was to bet money, it would be on that. I think Nathan Housley in the comments here does seem to have read the comics, and he's saying no, especially Laureline. <laughs> he calls her not Laureline. Um, well, let me... I had a lot of problems with Valerian. Uh... However, there is a lot to like about the movie, too, and a lot that they did very, very well. And some of the problems I had are just kind of confusing things that didn't make sense to me. That may be the fault of the comic, or that may be the fault of how they had to compress material and rewrite and reshape the material to make it into a movie. When I first... Uh, Valerian is heavily CG. Um, heavily CG. And... When I first, for the first like 15, 20 minutes of the movie, I'm just thinking, wow, this is not a high budget, this is not an action movie, this is not actually a movie, it's a high budget CG cartoon. 
because that's all you get in the beginning is a, a pre uh, preface with a bunch of um, aliens and their planet is CG and their CG and everything is CG. And you don't get me wrong, the special effects are fabulous. They are incredible. They are amazing. What we can do with special effects uh, today is astounding because they look real. There's enough detail to them and enough uh, development is put into them that they look real. They're not quite photorealistic because they do look a little cartoony, but I don't know. I don't know how much more you could do to make this look more real than it possibly, uh, how much you could possibly do to make it look more real than it already does. So after the introduction, the very first time we see um, Valerian and Laureline, the movie went out of its way to make a bad impression. Uh, yeah, I've, instead of uh, instead of having them opening him up on an adventure or anything, they have them in you know the equivalent of the Star Trek holodeck flirting, uh, being 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 personally connected, not at all professional, and not sort of not quite setting the stage for what you're going to see in the rest of the movie. Um. So the first big red flag in the movie is that there is sort of a romance going on between Valerian and Loreline, but it the movie muddles the gender roles between the two to the point where the romance doesn't really come out in the movie. Um, and like for three minutes or two minutes, or maybe it seemed maybe it was just a minute, but it seemed forever. Your main character, Valerian, who's your male lead, who, in order for the story to really work, needs to have, really, he needs to have some of the same qualities that a Han Solo does. Um, he needs to be confident, he needs to be strong, he needs to be manly, but he spends a couple of minutes of screen time either begging her to go out with him or begging her to kiss him or begging her for sex, depending on which way you want to interpret uh, the morals behind the conversation. And it is pathetic. He looks like a loser. And even if she was attracted to him, if you spend several minutes begging a girl to go out with her and whining about why she's not going out with you, doesn't work don't do it and it makes the main character seem like a loser it makes him seem indecisive it makes him seem pathetic and i hated it and and it started off the entire movie uh badly for me um i i, I think you're right i i was trying to figure out what was going on with the the complete lack of chemistry between these characters. Uh, the, the actors had nothing either. I mean, the, I, 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 for, I mean, I believe that they were delivering their performances and lines just as the director wanted. Uh, like, I don't see any any lack of ability there, but the characters themselves just didn't work together. There was there was no romance, and it has a lot to do with what you just said, uh, where they they, they have exposition you know that explains that he's this cocky confident uh you know la ladies man and he has moments of that like that comes through uh at several points in the film but it's not consistent it, and and like you pointed out and i didn't realize it until you said it it was because that wasn't consistent with the character they were trying to set up yeah it wasn't consistent at all, and and there were a couple of other moments later where he does the whole you know swagger cocky thing, and you know he's a good actor. I think he's a good actor. Uh, it, it, he stopped looking like a, I mean he looks like a sixteen year old kid, right? He stopped looking like a sixteen year old kid and started looking like, like an actual uh, you know secret agent. Um. So the problem that was set up in the first scene where the gender rules are muddled and, and they're 
ascribed characteristics. What they tell you is exactly what John just said, that he's a, a charming, lovable rogue who is a ladies' man. The character never once in the entire movie acts like he's a charming rogue who's a ladies' man. Han Solo was just that. He just was. Every minute he was on screen, he looked like a lovable, charming rogue who was a ladies' man. You could just tell that by looking at him, by watching him. You didn't have to have Chewbacca say, oh, by the way, Han Solo is a charming, lovable, roguish ladies' man, just so you know. You didn't have to have other characters telling you what he was. He just was that. And Valerian was just not that. Um, uh, you, you bring up another one of the big problems of the movie is is odd, odd for someone who's been writing scripts for so long is way too much uh, tell and not show. Uh, I I don't think I mean he he had no idea he had no way of showing how Valerian was that type of character, and and so they just dumped all that info. Honest. Lots of exposition, especially about stuff that either you don't need to know about or uh, s stuff that contradicts the way the characters act later. Um, Ooh, that's a mortal sin in films. Film is a visual medium. Dunkirk is an hour and 47 minutes long. Valerian is two hours and 30 minutes long. And there is nothing that happens in those extra 45 minutes that really justify it. The story is long. A lot of things happen. It's really confusing. Um, the characters' motivations are confusing. The characters' actions are confusing. They switch motivations on a dime. There is a lot of frippery in the story. There is a lot of CGI, which usually is used to good effect. The CGI is used to create alien races or situations that would be impractical to shoot with practical effects. By and large, the CGI is used well, but it still it, it still kind of pushes the story, pushes the movie too far towards fantasy, and you need real human characters with relatable motivations and a grounded, clear story to make it all make sense. And you got that in the professional, you do not get that in Valerian. Um, let me give you... Well, I don't that, know. that goes actually... That is a good setup for my summary of the movie because in, in this film, especially in a lot of the uh, action scenes set in the, the subtitle City of a Thousand Planets, where the action scenes are reminiscent of the great uh, scenes of the city in Fifth Element. And it looked like Luc Besson wanted to revisit that sort of feel, that look and feel. And I think he did it. Uh, it, it, it reminded me of watching Fifth Element. But for the reasons that you just stated and more, the movie has no soul. There's no... Like there's no really relatable characters. Nothing particularly interesting happens. There are, there really aren't any stakes. They they pretend that there are stakes. There are no stakes. Uh, it was, it was just he, he tried to recapture the magic of the fifth element and none of the things that made the fifth element, what it was, aside from the cool visuals and and, and the action scenes. None of it was there. Um, yeah, my, my last complaint is just, uh, it's really kind of a world-building, nitpicky thing. The, and it would take too long to explain to you, the audience, what the basic situation was and why there was a problem with it. So I'm just going to skip it. Um, but yeah, it, there was, the movie needed to be structured differently. It needed to be plotted differently. It needed to be um, more clearly, have more clear morality. It needed to have more clear motivations. It needed to have less of a focus on special effects and more of a focus on the characters. And 
probably in the case of Valerian, it needed a different actor. It needed an actor who can carry off convincingly uh, young 20s strength and masculinity. So I don't know who you, I, I haven't like sat down and tried to do a dream casting for the role, but definitely this actor just did not work in the part, at least for what the character was intended to be. This specific actor um, will not, uh, did not do the job. Uh, Nathan Housley in the chat said that uh, the fifth element had the Valerian and Loreline artist working on it, and that's why there was such a, uh, a you know, consonance between the visual style of both movies. And there are a lot of moments in this movie that if you've seen Luc Besson movies or if you've seen The Fifth Element are not directly copied but are strongly reminiscent of. So I um, I would not recommend people spend money in the theaters to go see um, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. If you have a chance to watch it on cable, uh, or if you have a chance to run it for a buck at Redbook or whatever, go for it. Um, but I would not watch it in the theaters. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't even recommend it for cheesy, cheesy action fun. I had no idea it was uh, that long even because I was I was not really engaged by the whole movie. All right, well... Um, do you have any questions uh, before we move on to Dunkirk? Brad? No. Okay. Um, do you, uh, since both of us talked about Valerian, do you want to introduce Dunkirk? Sure. Dunkirk is latest movie from Christopher Nolan, whom most listeners might remember from his Dark Knight trilogy of Batman films. And I'm just going to say it. He has yet to make a bad movie. You might not like all the choices he's made, in previous movies, but the guy makes well put together entertaining movies. And Dunkirk, I mean, he, I don't think I should issue a spoiler alert for an actual battle from World War II that's a matter of record. I mean, re read history book, but it's like eight yeah. years old. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well past the statute of limitations. So it it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Um, there's an interesting twist on the war movie genre here that I suppose we can talk about later, but um, it's about the Battle of Dunkirk, and it isn't. Um, for one thing, one interesting conceit of the movie is there are three interweaving plot points, so sort of three different timelines that are, that are interwoven, but each one not only takes place at a different place at first, but they're in a different time scale. So there's the story of a soldier who's stranded under the beach, is trying to get back to England, and that covers a week of time. Then there's the story of a civilian small private boat captain who volunteers to sail across the channel and help with the evacuation effort and he's there with his two sons on the boat. And that covers a day of time. And then there are a couple of RAF pilots flying Spitfires to just try to shoot down as many German planes as they can to help cover the escape. And that covers one hour. So I thought that was uh, the interplay there was interesting. And, and so a lot of the movie happens out of chronological order. Um, because these... All three of these stories start at the beginning of the movie, and they're interwoven. So you're going from event to event to event in this week-long thing, most of which are going to happen before, you know, the one day and before the one-hour timeline. And then you're going from event to event to event in the one-hour timeline, uh, interpolated. So it'll do scene from one, then another, then one, then another. Um, and, man that could be so confusing and hard to swallow. Um, but he does a brilliant job, and I'll just give you one example. There are two different scenes where two ships sink. And it would be really, really easy to get confused as to which is which, except that one ship is sinking at night and one ship is sinking during the day. And so it is immediately clear 
just by the visuals without being told anything, without having a clock, it's immediately clear which one of those sequences you're in. And, and, and obviously your lead character, your viewpoint character for that sequence makes it clear as well. But, but it's immediately viscerally clear, okay, this is happening in this sequence of events and this is happening in that sequence of events just by the fact that one is in day and one is in night. It's very, very subtle, very, very powerful. I was very impressed by all of the other things that played into that. That's just one example. So it sounds like you picked the right two movies to compare and contrast here because it sounds like Dunkirk, in terms of visuals, is the exact opposite of Valerian and Laureline because Nolan understands the visual language of film above all else. I, I think you could just mute this movie. You could mute Dunkirk and watch it without dialogue because there's already precious little dialogue in it. And you would fully understand the, the gist of it. You, you would understand everything that goes on. You, I, that's a good point. You could mute that movie and you would understand everything. But but I think you're I think you're right. He this is typical Christopher Nolan. I should have expected it going into it. But he's I mean this is the guy who did Memento, and Inception and Interstellar. You know space <laughs> space and time are fungible concepts to him. <laughs> yeah, and, and you'll notice that Christopher Nolan. Every single movie he does, Christopher Nolan is pushing forward his skills as a director. He, he deliberately sets up challenging movies, movies that are challenging for him, movies that are challenging to shoot, movies that are challenging to make. And he deliberately pushes forward his skills again and again and again. And, and let me show you real quick three examples. It, there's the very first Batman movie, which has kind of a conventional three-act structure. Now, the next movie he makes, The Dark Knight, is with the Joker, right? And it has the following structure. Um, act 1, Act 2, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and Act 3. Hmm. There is a larger, there is a three-act structure embedded in a larger three-act structure. And just when you expect the movie to end or to move into the climax, he kicks off another story. Very challenging to do, very challenging to bring the audience along with because the audience is used to the rhythms and the timing of a three-act movie, and he plays with that and sets it up and moves on. And then in The Dark Knight Rises, normally what you have as you lead up to the climax is you have rising and falling tension to where you'll have an increase in tension where the audience is all nervous, and then you let it drop off just a bit, but not a ton, and then you have another rise in tension even higher, and then they drop off just a little bit. What he does for the entire last hour of that movie is have one long ramp of increasing tension. He ratches it up and ratches it up and ratches it up and never lets you back off from it, never gives you a moment of respite. And so that's very, very difficult to do is continually increasing the tension while keeping it tense, while keeping the audience on this, you know, edge of their seats for an hour. And then um, in Inception, he's playing with four different levels of reality in, or five, depending on, on how you count that, um, and different time scales in each different level of reality and having to explain all of that to the audience, having to explain whose dreams they are going into and having to keep all of that crystal clear and apparent on one watch. On, on the first watching without having a lot of time for the audience to get caught up and used to the ideas. He has to give it to you directly, immediately, in a way that you understand uh, where they are, what each level is, and each level is distinct. Each level is like you have the contrast between the snow level and the hotel level immediately obvious which level you're on by the scenery, by what people are wearing, by the visuals on screen, so you don't have to be told every single time they switch as an audience member. Very, very incredibly difficult to do. So every time he makes a new movie, he picks a script or shapes a script, because again, this script was written with his brother, again, like the other movies, he tends to do. His brother is apparently a genius screenwriter uh, who only works with Christopher. Uh, his brother's name, by the way, is Jonathan Nolan. And every time he makes a new movie, he 
has the script structured so it presents new challenges for him as a director. He is always pushing himself forward, always pushing his art forward. And uh, it's just amazing to see that he has not yet, despite all the success he's had, he's not resting on his laurels. He's not just churning out stuff uh, like, like he always does. Here, here. So that said, can, can we get into the, the content and themes of the movie? Because I wanted to talk about those. I just want to make one comment. This is the only yeah. note I wrote down for the entire movie. Um, is this. Dunkirk is a tight, almost claustrophobic look at war. You have uh, Saving Private Ryan. The beach scene was a vast panoramic look at war. And occasionally there are things like that without the war. You see the entire long beach with columns of troops waiting to board. But by and large, all of the action, all of the events, all of the violence happens while you're very tightly focused on one of the three main characters. And it is from their point of view. And you are brought directly into their world. It is their story. It is not the story of World War II. Exactly. And that's that's what I noticed about it was see, I went into it expecting a, a war movie, and it is that, but what sets Dunkirk apart from something like Saving Private Ryan, for example, or like like the previous like like most war movies, is that it's not really the story of a victory, right? Because Dunkirk was a, a defeat for the Allies, and, and yet it was kind of a moral victory. So it's this is almost like the Apollo 13 of war movies, you could say. But it's about survival. That is the main impetus for the characters in this film. You know, they've, they've done their duty. Like, they're, they're actually being discharged, and now their goal is just to get home in one piece. And the lengths they go to make for some of the most grueling and, and, and gritty and, and visceral film I've seen in a while. I don't know about you guys. And, and yet it's not dark. It's not depressing. It's not oppressive. Right. Um, it's not It's not subversive either. Yeah. Right. Because uh, like, there's one part where like an, an old blind man is just saying well done lads to all the, all the soldiers walking by and one says all, all we did is survive and the old man says that's enough no, um is, hey, go ahead. for the audience um those of you who may not know what dunkirk was in the very beginning of world war ii hitler's blitzkrieg uh launched against france and they wiped out the french and english armies just drove them all the way across the country and trapped them in this tiny little pocket around two cities on the french coast one of which is dunkirk there were four hundred thousand british soldiers trapped so it's a massive amount of men. It's the bulk of the British army. And if those soldiers had either been captured or killed by the Germans, that was it. Great Britain was out of the war. And um, and this is something I found out by reading um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. The Dunkirk evacuation to take all of these soldiers from Dunkirk back to England, it used up so many vessels from France that Hitler didn't have the sea uh, ships he needed to invade England. So by evacuating all these soldiers, they took every single boat they could um, from France and from England, came over, picked up these troops and carried them away. They basically not only saved the British army, saved Great Britain from um, absolute defeat in World War II, they also prevented the future invasion of Great Britain itself because those soldiers, uh, all the boats along the French coast that would have been used or could have been used to carry British uh, German troops could not be used. And the 
um, saving the troops at Dunkirk is what allowed Winston Churchill to make his famous and inspiring speech about we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the landing grounds, we will fight them in the streets, we will fight them in the hills, we will never, ever, 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 ever surrender. Uh, which is the sentiment and the speech that carried uh, Great Britain through the Battle of Britain, which is the you know the six-month period where the Luftwaffe were bombing London and sending missiles over and all that stuff. So it was a very key moment. And although it was, uh, speaking surely in terms of tactics, it was an absolute defeat. It was a defeat that allowed them to preserve their army, preserve their forces, keep the Commonwealth, keep the British nations in the war, and keep Great Britain in the war. And we could use Great Britain then as a launching board to, you know, pummel Germany into dust with bombers and then launch the invasion of Europe to liberate Europe. Uh, if without Great Britain as an island there uh, to use as a base, it would have been so much harder and would have involved so many more deaths to try and invade Europe through, for example, Italy or through... Um, you know, across the Bosphorus Straits into Eastern Europe, or however we did it, it would have just been bloody and brutal and difficult. But with Great Britain there, uh, it became possible. And so it was a very, very key moment in the war. Absolutely. And that's... Do you think that's the theme of the movie? Because that's one of the things that I was... I was wrestling with, was, I was trying to find, you know, what, what's the message here? What would a normie just absorb from this experience? Because the main character does do a few things that could be considered kind of, kind of sleazy, kind of underhanded in order to survive. But like you said, he, he's not a villain. He's not a coward. You know, that this isn't about uh, a bunch of deserters. You know, these guys have they're they're cleared to be shipped home, but they don't always do the most ethical actions, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you can you can definitely see uh, the desperation in some of the characters and it has varying levels and and like the movies very importantly doesn't paint them as cowards. They well and they even put a lampshade on on one of the characters. Uh, featured prominently in the trailers, mm. um, you know, one of the characters asks, "Is he a coward?" You know, and and the the another character says, "Oh no, he's you know he's shell shocked." Yeah. Uh, so uh, I I I really like how it to me to me I think it was um, there it was a lot of it was a, a really tight knit tales of bravery, but not necessarily. That not necessarily the type of bravery that you usually see in a wartime film. Most war movies are about an objective, capturing an objective, or going being aggressive, or going on offense, or something like that. This is very like a very different setting and a very different you know set of circumstances that are still part of war. And it was just it was a great way to show how all these different characters reacted to their various situations. Uh, you know the yeah. uh, the old man on on the boat, um, the pilot played by Tom Hardy, and the um, the third character, I uh, one of, you know one of the soldiers trying to escape that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did, did either of you guys have flashbacks to Bane with Tom Hardy's character? <laughs> as soon as he put the well, uh, mask on, <laughs> he, he spends the entire movie in uh, in the mask of a pilot, which is good because we know he can't act through a mask, and this mask is even more than the Bane mask, and it's brilliant. Like he, you just Tom Hardy delivers a performance which is astounding because his entire face is covered with leather except for his eyes, and even his eyes are obscured by the shape of the lenses of the mask he's wearing and by how. Uh, and by how tight they are. So you only see a very, his eyes and a very small amount around them and they're, and they're obscured somewhat. And yet you can tell immediately, just by watching how his eyes move, you can tell he's thinking about a decision, he's thinking about a decision, he's made a decision, he's acting on the decision. You can watch that interplay of thoughts just by looking at his eyes. And it is, it is 
brilliant. No body language because he's in a big coat and he's strapped into the seat and the, and the camera isn't even showing you his body language anyway. It's on a tight shot of his face. But man, was that masterful. That was just impressive. Um, yeah. He's an incredible physical actor. And like you said, there was even at least one scene where not only had all that gear on, but then also sunglasses. So you can't see any of his features. That, that Oodaloop loop in the, in the dog fight. You know, you, you can kind of see the gears turning in his head. I just, I, I, I cannot tell you how impressive all the performances in this movie are. I don't remember a single character who turned in a bad performance. Um, a single uh, actor turned in a bad performance. No, not at all. I, I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of the dog fight. When was the last time we got to see a dog fight in a movie? Come on, that was great. <laughs> yeah, I like how they put the, the camera on the plane's wing like he did with Interstellar. Um, uh, and, and, it, and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't like fast and, and quick cut and, and everything like that. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't disorienting. I mean, it's, the, he was, he, the, he was able to convey the progress of the dog fight without trying to sort of make you understand precisely wherever every plane was. It was just like, all right, the planes are sort of in this position. I know that this character has advantage right now, and he's taking shots at this other one. That sort of thing, right? Because um, he didn't, he didn't like try to show exactly where every plane was so you could watch it. Christopher Nolan has the confidence in his ability as a director to allow long shots to go long. When a shot needs to go long, he lets it. So when you need to sit on the, you know, looking through the gun sights of the plane. Miss, miss, turn, hit. He lets you just, lets that go on. There's no cuts. There's no breaks. He lets that go on long enough for the events that need to happen in one shot to happen. That gives you more of a feel. In that one scene, that gives you more of a feel for what a dogfight is like, for what you as a pilot have to do to hit the enemy. That gives you more of a feel for that than spending an hour on, you know, very, very large level, precise uh, mechanics. And he does it very, very compactly, very, very concisely. And for the, uh, I, absolutely right. And of course, for the, uh, um, for the gamer nerds out there, yeah, you, you'll be impressed at just how good a pilot Tom Hardy is. Oh, seriously. <laughs> that yeah. last one? Yeah, come on, because uh, uh, they ratcheted up the tension, and that was the only point in the movie I sort of blinked in the theater and went, "Oh, oh, come on!" I don't want to spoil it, but he he does some very impressive feats of fighter piloting. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 all three stories, by the way, all three stories come together at the end. All three stories meet, and so what you have over the course of the movie is these three stories that are going in directions on different time scales, and yet they all come to a point together at the very end of the movie in a very satisfying way. Um, and but the one character who is shell-shocked, who is kind of shown to be, uh, you know, they ask him if he's a coward. What I really liked about that is after a couple of scenes of him being broken, you get to see him after those scenes of him being broken. You get to go back in time and see him before he got broken by the combat, before he got broken by the constant fire, before he got broken by a ship being blown out from underneath him. You get to see him as a calm, competent, brave uh, leader of men, and so you have an immediate contrast with what happened to the character later and what happened to him earlier and how those two are combined. And it makes his story very, very clear, even though it's told out of chronological order. So I'm curious, what did you guys make of, you shall say nebulous treatment or nebulous depiction of the Germans? Because... You never really see him in, until the very end. And even then, it's kind of fuzzy. And they're, they're just this pervasive presence. But they're, um, they're only referred to just as the enemy, you know, almost Lord of the Rings style. You know, they're, they're not really personified. What, what do you make of that? I, well, my reaction was, and I did notice it throughout the film, I, I actually really liked it. Um, what do I think about that? I think it was a good choice because uh, 
it's it's what I liked about the movie, the way it was a tight story about the way the characters reacted to that situation. And it wasn't a conflict with the Germans, right? The main conflicts were not with the Germans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main con- the main conflicts were uh, with and you know inside the characters as well as you know fighting nature at various points. Um, so I think it was a great choice. Uh, we didn't have to have any uh, you know Germans screaming on camera. If, if you're expecting you know lots of you know Hollywood Germans running around shooting people, that that doesn't happen. It's all about the characters in the story. Yeah, you see the effects of the Germans' actions without having to see the Germans. So at one point, they're shooting something up, and you see bullet holes appearing. And um, But the focus in that scene is not about the Germans, but about what the characters are doing, what the characters in the movie are doing in those circumstances. And so you don't actually need the Germans there. You don't need the Germans there to tell that story. It's kind of shocking to say. Um, but the way they set up the story and the way they've set up the movie, you don't need to see individual Germans. You see their effects on characters. Uh, well, the, the the point I was trying to make is that it's not that it's not so much need. It's that putting Germans in the movie would be wrong. It would it, it would actually uh, hurt the movie because it would no longer be about those characters and what they're doing because then you've you've introduced an automatic antagonist, you know, th- that this is the enemy army. Then the, you know, any scene where a German shows up, it becomes, okay, how do I, you know, ev- evade capture or how do I kill them? Uh, something like that. Right. So, so it's not so much needs is that the, sorry, it's not so much that you don't need to see Germans is that the story requires it. Yeah. One thing that I got from it was, I really felt thrust into the situation. It felt very immersive where, okay, we're, we're on this beach, we're stuck in this town, we're on, we're on this little boat, and there's this pervasive menacing force that's just over the horizon that could strike at any time and just d- destroy us, like stuffing out a candle flame at, at any moment. And then also with uh, the time... Hardy dogfight scenes because he never sees the men he's killing. It gives you a very palpable sense of that dissociation you get from from modern war. You know, I'm not sticking a bayonet into a guy right in front of me. I've got my multi-million dollar death machine and he's got his, and we're we're just gonna shoot at each other from miles away. And it's it, it's very calculating, like Daddy Warpig pointed out. You know, you see the decision making. It uh, me. Still, still trying to work it out. That's a great band name, Multi-Million Dollar Death Machine. <laughs> Trademark. Million Dollar Death Machine would be would be uh, clearer. Oh, there you go. Um. Yeah, I. I the way they make the Germans in the movie is it almost changes the movie into a man versus nature, as, as John was saying. Um, oh, it does. Yeah. Uh, where the Germans almost become like the avalanche in um, in the Everest movie or whatever. They are implacable in human force, overwhelming, moving on you, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. You can't defeat them. All you can do is get out of the way. Um, and that's what Dunkirk is. That's what the story of Dunkirk is, is you're, you're, you've lost, you're defeated. There is no way to pull victory out of the hat right now. It is only about getting away and surviving as an army, as a country. And as these characters, um, one of them, their story is about getting away and surviving. One of them, their story is about risking, he's a, a, an old man who, gets on his yacht and goes directly into combat and has, you know, risks his life to try and save soldiers. And so, yes, I mean, one of the soldiers is desperate and doing anything he can to escape, but the storyline is 
beside that is the old man who is not a combatant. He has no armor. He has no flak vest. He has no helmet. He's just on a, a, a wooden yacht going directly into the face of, at that point in time, you know, the second biggest army in Europe, a highly victorious army, um, braving sure death to do so. And the other one is about uh, someone who has a chance to escape in his plane, who's providing cover for men on the beach, and then what he decides to do as that window of escape begins to close. Um, and so there are two stories of heroism, two stories of self-sacrifice, and one story of a man who is desperate and desperately trying to escape, but at the same time, he doesn't cross a moral line to where he's uh, he doesn't become a villain. He doesn't become um, he doesn't lose his uh, humanity because it's possible at some points when you've been under stress long enough and you've been under stress bad enough that you become so desperate you kind of lose your conscience in that desperation where it's not just about you struggling to survive. You start going out of your way. Um, if you need some food, you kill someone else who's trying to go for the same food. Uh, it, it, the man, despite all the pressures he's under, uh, never ever crosses that line. Um, Indeed, there, there's a scene to show that, that he's not just trying to get himself up. He, he wants as many of his comrades to escape as possible. He's not just looking out for one number one, and he's pitted against a character who is and stands up to him. So, so I mean, I, I, I understand, and you understand why he's so desperate. He's in a squad of six men at the very beginning of the movie, the very first scene of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a minor spoiler, but it's in the very first scene of the movie, and I don't think it's going to be giving anything away, especially after what we've said so far. He's in a squad of six men, and they begin getting picked off in rapidly in the space of a few seconds, all of his squad is dead and he's running away from the Germans. So they set up those circumstances so that you as an audience know what the stakes are for him uh, and why he acts the way he does later in the movie. It is out of pure desperation and, and, um, it explains why he does what he does, but at the same time, even being pushed to that extent, he never crosses a moral line to where he's acting uh, immoral or acting, uh, you know, evilly. So, um, yeah, uh, this movie shows nobility, it shows honor, it shows self-sacrifice, it shows how even someone who is broken in a certain sense and under tremendous pressure can still act in a noble and decent way and it shows desperation and devotion and determination and it does it all very very well and it never ever ever sells you um, nihilism or despair or uh, moral relativism Any last comments before we sign out? It's excellent. See it. Yeah, I think this is unanimous. That This is worth seeing and worth seeing in the theater. Um, go watch Dunkirk. It's an incredible movie. Give Valerian the City of a Thousand Planets a skip. Watch it later. I, I say you can watch it later on, you know, cable or whatever. Um, John says skip it. And definitely, if you haven't seen The Professional yet, uh, and you like those kinds of movies based on what we described earlier in the short, go see it. It's a very, very well done um, example of, of uh, that genre of movie. And again, the theatrical release, folks. Can't stress that enough. Yeah, do not see the extended release. Absolutely not. It may be sold under the director's cut or whatever. Luc Besson has actually said at one point that that is not the director's cut. His director's cut was what was released in the theaters. So do not see the extended version um, or the long version. That's one of the terms I use for it, the long version. See the original theatrical release. It is the best cut. Um, 
This is Geek Gab. We're available at youtube.com slash Geek Gab, or you can just do a search for Geek Gab. We're on the iTunes store, we're on SoundCloud, and we're on the Google Play store. You can subscribe to us there and download the podcast. We have three, three different shows in uh, the Geek Gab podcasting network. The first one is this one, Geek Gab Prime, uh, as Brian calls it. The second one is Geek Gab on the Books, which is a weekly show about uh, the business of books and writing books and uh, the art of books and things like that. And the third one is Geek Gab Game Night, our irregularly produced show about tabletop role-playing games hosted by uh, John. And Geek Gab on the Books, by the way, is hosted by Brian. Um who, who's your guest this week on uh, on the books, or do you have one? I don't have one, but I did have a request from listeners to talk about research for sci-fi and fantasy books. So uh, the plan right now is to talk about that, pending me finding a guest. But that's all right. I haven't done one with uh, just me since the first show. So I think we're good either way. All right. And uh, then on Geek Gab, a night... This week, we help, uh, assuming everything goes fine, uh, for Mark Kern, again, the uh, lead developer of World of Warcraft, and uh, one of the leads on Diablo 2, formerly at Blizzard, uh, now working on his own independently, uh, to come on the show, and we'll talk about his role-playing game and, and the computer game he's made from that. So, thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been Geek Gab. We are leaving you today. We're abandoning you to the harsh visic tubes of a cold and impersonal universe, but don't worry, don't you fret, we will be back.